Hello and welcome. You're listening to Talkville 21, the podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Tuckville 21 podcast. I'm your host Shane McLaurin, managing editor at Tuckville 21. Today we return to the vast topic of China, and more specifically the topic of China's domestic politics, the mechanisms through which the Chinese Communist Party legitimizes itself, how it asserts its rule both in the mainland and in Hong Kong, and the lenses through which it can be viewed both by dissidents and by outside observers. Here to guide us through this complex topic is Jeffrey Wasserstrom. Jeffrey Wasserstrom is Chancellor's Professor of History at UC Irvine and a visiting professor at Birkbeck College, University of London. His expertise is regularly sought after by newspapers and magazines, and he has published several books on the topic of China. His most recent books are Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink, and as editor, The Oxford History of Modern China. We hope you enjoy this episode. All right, so here we are. Jeffrey Wasserstrom, welcome to the Talkville 21 podcast. Great. It's great to be on it. All right. Well, uh, I wanted to ask a few broad questions about the nature of the relationship between China and the West. But I suppose the first question will go back to your writings. Uh, in China in the 21st century, you characterized the situation as stable, if fragile. In Vigil, on the other hand, you tend to evoke a sense of despair. How would you now characterize the internal situation in China? So in the case of, well, I would say with Vigil, the sense I was conveying was the feeling in Hong Kong much more than in, across the People's Republic of China. So that's one of the contrasts between the two books. But things change over time. I, I think there's a lot of discontent within China right now. And we saw quite dramatically evidence of that in a wave of protests that took place in November of last year. But at the same time, there are a lot of different groups that have a lot of different concerns and dissatisfactions. On the other hand, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't show signs of losing power anytime soon. There's no space right now for really organized opposition. There have been protests continually in China ever since Tiananmen. I think it was a misconception when the protests broke out in November and the press sometimes had the biggest protests since Tiananmen. What was different in this last November with these white paper protests related to, to COVID rules and things was it was the first time there had been simultaneous protests in multiple cities at the same time uh, since Tiananmen. But there have been big, much bigger crowds or much bigger protests involving workers who were laid off, involving people angry about um, a polluting plant near them. There were Falun Gong protests in the 1990s. All of these involved more people. But what tended to happen was they were isolated. There were individual regions or individual classes that were involved in them, other than the Falun Gong protests, which were severely, severely uh, repressed. So the Chinese Communist Party has kind of come up with this strategy of often letting people let off steam as long as it's only in individual places, individual issues, individual classes, what they've been worried about continually haunted by the way that the Soviet Union imploded, haunted by the way that change came to places like Poland under solidarity, uh, and haunted by the way that in 1989, a movement seemed to emerge that was connecting people across regions and across classes. What they've tended to do is stomp down very hard on anything that's like an organized opposition, 
uh, that connects people in different ways. And I think that that helps to explain why they were not willing to give any ground in Hong Kong, because even though it was localized to one place, it was connecting people across that whole city. It was connecting them across social groups. So it looked like the kind of thing that they just, they do not see a place for in the People's Republic of China under their watch. So it's stable in the sense that I don't see a scenario precisely where Communist Party rule would end. That doesn't mean that that people are all happy with it, but it means that there's no clear alternative. And I think the state of the world makes this uh, sort of plays into the Communist Party's hand right now, because one of the things that can undermine authoritarian rules, if people can see other places that they view as having a much better system, a better place to live. And well, I think there are lots of advantages to other systems besides uh, the one in the PRC. Uh, it's very easy for propagandists right now within the PRC to say, where would you rather be? And you can point, you don't have to make things up. You can tell people about gun violence in, in America. You can tell people about the problems with infrastructure, as well as the sort of inability to keep a prime minister for very long that's going on in the UK, where I've been uh, living for the last um, little bit. You can point to all sorts of regions that are racked by violence and instability, and you can say, you know, not in so many words, even if you don't like the system we have, what are the alternatives? Wouldn't the alternatives be something that would make your daily life much worse? Hmm. Going back to the protests in November, uh, and that sort of continued on until the, uh, the lifting of anti-COVID measures, I, w- I was actually rather surprised because when they broke out, I was expecting a much broader, much harsher crackdown. And it seemed like the government kind of caved a little bit to the pressure uh, is that a correct characterization? Or? Yeah, we still, we still. Uh, one of the things that with high level politics right now, it's such a black box because we have so little access to Xi Jinping's kind of calculations. We don't know much about his inner circle. Um, there haven't been high level defections. So we, what we don't know is, for example, to what extent there were, um, there was, there was probably some discussion about needing to move away from. Um, from what, what wasn't working economically by this point of the zero COVID thing. So there may have been some readiness to, to move. So the, the protest put pressure on it, but it wasn't as though um, the reverse course just came completely out of nowhere. There, there, there was some kind of expectation that there would be, you know, heightened, there would be a, a, an unwillingness to shift anything too dramatically until this big party Congress was over and that then after that, something might happen. And clearly the speed of that was um, was related in some way to the protests. Um, and then in terms of, yeah, I, I, I would have, ex- there were a lot of things that, that I think it's important for China specialists to say when we're surprised. And, you know, I expected something harsher. Um, on the other hand, there's been a tendency for the Chinese Communist Party in recent years to try to find ways to, um, to exert pressure on people that doesn't make for the kind of um, um, iconic photos or sound bites or things that can that can make the repression uh, a kind of front page story on mm-hmm. and off. So there were there there were signals clearly sent with um, with activists and also people who just happen to be in the wrong place, wrong time, being detained, being hassled. A clear signal being sent that you're being watched and something like this again will come with um with with um with harsher harsher measures i mean you could say that in some ways after 
the 2014, the big umbrella movement in Hong Kong, there, there were signals sent that, you know, this won't be tolerated forever, but there also weren't the kind of um, as much of a um, uh, overt repression as you, you might've expected. Um, there were a lot of surprises um, last fall. I mean, that was the fact that the protests took place was surprising. The fact that there wasn't, say, more of a crackdown was, was somewhat surprising. Even more surprising to me, though, was what happened in September of um, 2020 when a lone, lone um, activist put up big banners in Beijing over a bridge. And while they were taken down and he's disappeared, they were up long enough for... Um, for photographs to be taken of them and to circulate around the world. And then some of the um, some of the slogans from them showed up again in the protests in November and they were kept alive in part. And this was again, surprising, I think to some people, they were kept alive in part by students outside of China, students from the PRC outside of China, putting up versions of it. So you had a few things that I think are kind of misconceptions. So um, that, even people who kind of know better, as I kind of, I hope I do, sometimes can't help but being drawn into. So one misconception was that Beijing, uh, that China has become such an, um, such an extraordinary surveillance state that because of high technology, there just isn't a way for certain kinds of um, expressions of discontent to happen, at least in the most tightly controlled parts of the country, like Xinjiang. Um, which is subject to very harsh repression and very harsh surveillance as, as, as Tibet. But also Beijing, when um, there's the lead up to a party Congress, all the kind of security measures are on um, extra alert. And yet somebody managed somehow to get those banners up long enough for them to be photographed. Um, I mean, it was a very daring act. He must have known it would be the end of his political life, at least, and potentially his life, but still was daring to do it. And that was that was extraordinary. And it was really surprising because of the sense of how tight surveillance seemed. But it shouldn't be in a sense because there are always cracks in these, these systems, or at least we should be hesitant about assuming some places closed off completely, even when it seems to be. But then it was surprising, I think, to some people that there were students outside of China keeping these things alive because one stereotype of the current generation of young Chinese from the mainland is they've been kind of brainwashed and they're all uh, hyper-nationalists. And you know, some of them are, but clearly some of them aren't. And so it was there was just lots of this that was um, surprising. It wasn't surprising. There was a lot of frustration about zero COVID. There were protests in different places, largely online protests beforehand, but also protests by factory workers before the ones in the city. So the November ones didn't come out of nowhere. Um, they were surprising because of their multi-sidedness. They were surprising that there wasn't a, a more obvious harsh crackdown, a subtler one came. But I think also just the fact that those banners went up were surprising in, a, in an important way. I mean, that to, to remind us that, that China is still not like North Korea in certain ways, even if people in China criticizing the system refer to themselves sometimes now as living in West North Korea, the the places that are most like that kind of totalistic, harshest kind of North Korea control really are places like Xinjiang, where the crimes against humanity against the Uyghurs are going on and going on still, um, places like Tibet. But Beijing, even under lockdown, even under alerts, is not is still not that kind of place. Hmm. Well, I mean, there are, generally speaking, I, 
I mean, it's going to come as no surprise to you, but China's rather big. There are limits to the ways that a surveillance state can express power over such a large territory, uh, simply because the technology is not as all-seeing as people assume it would be. But I did want to ask again about the nature of the discontent right now and how much of it is made possible by the high youth unemployment, the slowing economic growth, and the rising real estate prices. How, how much is that tied to the current discontent in, in China? So the way, the way I'd kind of talk about it in very general terms is that there is kind of a, a new social contract developed after the 1989 protests and crackdown, and very much an awareness of how things had unraveled in um, the Eastern, uh, in the Soviet bloc. Mm -hmm. So the new social contract was something like this, particularly presented to students and to the middle class was in exchange for not having political choices or demanding political choices, we'll give you more choices in your daily life and in all, in many other spheres. You'll get more choices of how you entertain yourself, what you do. There've been a lot of um, state intrusion, intrusiveness and in things like shuffling students to particular jobs and to things. There were lots of choices that the youth who were discontented in 1989 felt that young people in other parts of the world just didn't have the state in their face the same way all the time and that they could, um, you know, the state was trying to limit what kind of music they could listen to, what kind of movies they could watch. There was very little travel. And so they wanted to be able to live lives more like, and, and here we're talking about a kind of elite set of youth, but a very broad elite set because we're a lot of um, university students then. So in the 90s through the early 2000s, oh, and the other thing was there was a promise that over time, the economy would get better and better so that people would also be able to just have more stuff, which went along with the more choices. And the country wouldn't be left behind economically, and people would live better than their parents or grandparents had. And in the late, most of the 1990s and early 2000s, the state seemed to keep it up its side of the bargain. There was less micromanaging of private life. You could be in a Chinese city and not be constantly bombarded by official slogans. You could, youth were traveling more, um, middle-class people had more choices and would be brought more into the system than had ever happened in either the, the Soviet system or in kind of right-wing dictatorships, which had also fallen when there was a rising middle class. The Chinese Communist Party was aware of how change had come to South Korea, as well as how change had come to Hungary and Poland and places like that. So this kind of bargain of sort of the story that the Communist Party told of why they should be allowed to stay in power it had to do with you know economic rise, but also increasing choices and increasing connectedness uh, to the world, but allowing this monopoly on power. Things have shifted in the last decade, not just with Xi Jinping coming to power. They started to shift a little bit before, after the Olympics and after China did fairly well through the um, financial crisis. There was an added part of the story was partly a kind of cockiness that, look, under our watch, China really is riding high. Um, it's having more and more global clout. And how could this have happened without the Chinese Communist Party? So it's not just the economy has improved under our watch, and there's been stability under our watch, but also there's been this kind of increased national pride. So then in the last, say, five years, where the economy is slowing, so part of that story of legitimation is post-Tiananmen is, is having real problems. Then there's also this under COVID, there's this reversal of this idea of the state being less micromanaging of private life. So what we've seen is the Communist Party in doubling down on the kind of national pride and uh, nationalism stories to try to 
deflects some of the discontent, which is growing about this economic side to the story. And they're also playing up the world is trying to keep China down, or specifically the West is just unwilling to see a strong China. So there's a lot of discontent, but there's also there are also ways that it can emphasize parts of the story that it's been telling effectively. And that can be a buffer to not so much to the discontent, but to expressions of it, again, to legitimate. I just think regimes, no matter where they are and what system it is, they have to have compelling stories to tell about why they deserve to rule. Winning an election is a very compelling story to tell, but if you don't have that, you have to come up with others. And the Communist Party has been quite astute in coming up with stories and putting them them out. With regards to this characterization of growing nationalism in China, I, I definitely agree with you. But on the other hand, I'm seeing some signs, particularly in Western-facing commentary from the uh, leadership of the PRC, that there's also an unwillingness to abandon a more globalized system. There's a desire to maintain ongoing ties with the broader world and not actually really lean into this idea of China uh, as an autarkic state beset on all sides by foreign adversaries. I, I suppose the question here is, do I have it all wrong? So there's also the figure the figure of Xi Jinping and what he represents. And one mm-hmm. of the things that he's prided himself on having a global face to his rule, as well as a, a kind of nationalistic one. And so within China, for good reason, there's a lot of emphasis on being connected to the world. It's not just about being connected to the West or not just being connected to the United States. So there have been high profile moves like brokering a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran that China is fashioning itself as having a global role, which is a separate story um, in part to the relationship to specifically the United States or even to Europe. The government's trying to develop different kinds of relationships to some European countries. There's not an interest in being isolated again. And I think there also is a desire to try to get back to a period where Chinese people can travel. There is a sense that one of the things that would fuel discontent with zero COVID was that part of the deal was supposed to be that people could enjoy a lifestyle, which included things like you know, travel to different parts of the, of the world. And, and I think right around the time of the protests back in November, there's also an awareness of what's going on in the rest of the world. There's not a cutoff, even with the firewall, images circulate in, information circulates in and things like that. And people talked about the World Cup going mm-hmm. on and crowds enjoying themselves there at the same time that there was still restrictions in, in, in China. The other thing that I thought didn't get as much attention, but was also relevant was at that same moment, there were images of Xi Jinping going to Bali with his wife, getting off of a plane, enjoying, you know, great. They were there for a specific diplomatic meeting but they were still going to a really enviable part of the world to go there at the same time that people were not traveling. Whereas up to then, you would have images of Xi Jinping when he, he, for a long time, he didn't leave the country either. And when he did leave the country, he was the one most carefully masked. In Bali, he wasn't masked either. So I think there's a realization that that keeping up connection to the world is also a way of giving people within the country some of the consumer goods, not so much material consumer goods, but also parts of what is considered a, you know, a cosmopolitan life that you want to give the elite to Hmm. keep them willing to go along with other parts of the system. Hmm. Do you think there's any connection with the ongoing situation with Russia, most notably the, 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 um, 
potential fallibility of autocratic calculation. That's, yeah, I think there's lots of interesting things going on with the situation, um, um, with the invasion of Ukraine and the way that the Chinese Communist Party has dealt with that. I mean, certainly there are many things that Xi Jinping probably wished had gone differently with the war, that this wouldn't have, that this was, you know, this it's more protracted. The Chinese Communist Party is in an awkward position vis-a-vis the war, though it's trying to um, trying to carve out a space for itself as a, as a negotiator. But I think at another level, there's a usefulness for the Chinese Communist Party and the distraction, the distraction from issues in China that, that the war provides. Just for quite specifically, it really felt that the issue of the repression in Xinjiang was starting to get more global bandwidth and then, or more global attention. And then there's just a limited bandwidth in many parts of the world for an international story. So the horrors in Ukraine took up some of that space in the mental world, not to, and you know, this isn't just a China story. Burma continues to be beset by terrible human rights uh, abuses by the junta, but you hear less about that than you would be hearing if there wasn't the war in Ukraine. So for Xi Jinping, it's, he has some some leaders he's linked to that both do things that he wished they didn't do, but also are useful to him as a buffer. I think North Korea has long been this kind of thing. Like no matter how critical people might become of China, there's a way of saying, well, I mean, I even said it to some extent when I was talking about surveillance, but at least it's not North Korea. And I think at a geopolitical level, that can be useful. And Beijing can get some leverage out of being a rare place that seems to have some influence, even if it doesn't have, uh, clearly it doesn't have complete influence either in Pyongyang or in Moscow, but it gains some leverage from having that connection, even when it's frustrating. And I think one of the big things about the events was it was surprising to a lot of people how relatively unified the Western response to the invasion of Ukraine was. And I think that was really important from a China-focused point of view, because I think that sent a message about the potential cost of moving against Taiwan. Hmm. Absolutely. I don't think anyone would have anticipated this particular series of circumstances in Ukraine, even a week before the invasion. To go back to some of the existing narratives and the way that they dictate the relationship between China and the rest of the world, do you have any thoughts on the notion of the Thucydides trap? When I think about historical analogies, and I think about them a lot, I think it's almost always more useful to think about multiple analogies than to fix on any one kind of way things have gone before. And there's also a way that, of course, repetition is is shaped by the fact that people are thinking about the possibility of repetition, and there's an awareness of that. So I, I just think there's always a way in which, of course, it's worth looking at patterns that have happened in different parts of history. It's also worth thinking about how current situations are different than others. And I think there are all kinds of ways that you just have to be aware of the limitations as well. And I'd say the same thing when people bring up the Cold War analogy. You're, mm. You don't want to get into, speaking of traps, you don't want to get into the thing of thinking that there's any single category that you can put the individual players into and then um, describe them that way we continually need to keep checking those. I mean, the degree to which the PRC and the US are still interconnected in all kinds of ways is something different, I think, than you had with other kinds of periods of rising powers. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I should know more about ancient Greece. You know, Did you have the counterparts of elites from one power uh, having their kids going to school in the other power? I mean, I don't think so. So, you know, hmm. it's... Um, 
I don't want to downplay the value of, of historical uh, thinking, but I think it's always more useful to have multiple parts of this kind of uh, how the present is like the past in your mind at the same time. No, I, I absolutely agree. On the one hand, historical thinking is absolutely useful. On the other hand, perhaps maybe less of it by political scientists. <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to make it a, a thing about turf. I mean, so I think because <laughs> I, I actually think there are patterns in each of those. And so I think, I mean, actually, the work that I tend to think is best, that's kind of a comparative, uh, that's comparative, both comparative with the past and the present, are by people who have a deep knowledge of some area and then use put it in dialogue with something else. So the theorizing by social scientists that I tend to find um, most compelling is by people who really know one place really well and then are branching out from that. So I guess maybe sometimes they're more historical um, minded to begin with. So Charles Tilly was somebody who had this very deep knowledge of France, the French Revolution. And then he did this kind of model building and comparison from there, but could keep coming back to someplace that he, he knew deeply. So I think this is another way of saying, I think, I think there's a value for area expertise, even when people are then doing comparative work. And sometimes Sometimes it's done by historians and sometimes it's done by people who are trained in other disciplines, but think historically. And so I kind of want to make them honorary historians. And in still others, there sometimes it's even it's done by journalists who operate somewhat the way that academic historians might. I mean, I was really one of my favorite books from about 10 years ago was by a journalist, William Dobson, The Dictator's Learning Curve. He was a, a journalist, he also had a law degree, but he thought very historically as well as by looking at the contemporary world, but with a knowledge of, he happened to have a pretty deep knowledge of China when he looked at comparisons between authoritarian structures in different parts of the world, including China. I thought he got something really wrong, which was he said there was a rise of charismatic leaders in, in these different places. And in China at that point, there wasn't yet one but there was one right after his book came out. So he was wrong in a way that was almost prescient. Well, I definitely applaud you pushing back against my snobbery. Let's go back to this idea of interconnectivity. What do you think the ramifications are? Well, actually, let me contextualize that. Because on the one hand, you did also sort of invalidate or uh, put into question both the notion of the Thucydides trap and the notion of a sort of Cold War narrative. And I agree with you on both of those. But I wanted to talk about the other potential ramifications of the broader social connectivity between the West, well, that, the rest of the world, really, and China, and what impact that has on the, I don't know, popular psyche. That's that's a really good question. I mean, I think, I think that the issue of, of connectivity and things that are more porous about this period than the Cold War... And in porous in many ways, even that that there there was um, there was a, a a lot of discontent in among a, a certain kind of sort of youth in the in the Soviet bloc was feeling cut off from where the the popular culture action was. I mean, not to make it too simplistic, there was you know there was the Beatles, and then there were groups that you were being told within the Soviet bloc were just as good. And, you know, they weren't as good. And there was a great story that a Hungarian dissident um, was telling me about, you know, the, you could go to parties and you could listen to, you could listen to the music of the people that the, the state wanted you to listen to, or you could listen to um, radio stations that the, that the government was jamming and you would have to deal with static, but you would still get the real stuff. And you would listen to the static filled 
music of, of the Beatles. I mean, so with now, when we think about this, I mean, there, there are ways in which there'll be stories about, you know, the Chinese Communist Party blocking popular movies or limiting the number of things that come in. But lots of people of this kind of youth culture will have ways of using a VPN to get around it. They'll also be spending time in different parts of the world and enjoying it. And there also is a more, even China itself, the PRC hasn't been contributing to that much to like the attractions of global youth culture. And I think they do have a kind of soft power problem. Mm. And I think they really blew it in so many ways with Hong Kong. But one was that Hong Kong was the one part of the PRC that was producing globally admired popular culture in the form of Hong Kong films. You now have a world where K-pop, it matters, music being produced in different parts of the world, films, television shows, but also fashions and styles. You have something that's much more... Um, that's much more interconnected at many levels than I think the Cold War suggests and things. And and you do have um, architecture, all kinds of things that are more seem to be coming from many places places at once. So there is that kind of um, that kind of interconnectedness. Absolutely, and I think re- you you really hit the nail on the head there with regards to well K-pop and Hallyu and the entire wave of Korean and before that Japanese culture that really you know sort of took a hold across the entire planet. And it's, yeah, there's a notable absence from that list. China, which drew so much inspiration from the Japanese development model, just never seemed to manage to replicate specifically that form of cultural influence. And do you think this is a consequence of authoritarianism? I I heard a good hypothesis. I'll have to edit in the name of the uh, person who, who came up with it. But the idea was that ultimately get a choice between soft power and hard power. Uh, Do you think this is accurate? I think it's more challenging to figure out a way uh, to get soft power with authoritarian. I mean, I think if you have a complete unwillingness to allow certain kinds of creativity, it's certainly working against it. I mean, I think I think the Chinese Communist Party was on a route where there would have been more potential to have a degree of soft power if they'd continued along the trajectory they were on in the 1990s through early 2000s. For that time, they were allowing Hong Kong film to be flourishing. And I, and I do think that to a certain extent, Hong Kong was part of that success story of, of forms coming out of out of, out of of East Asia. Quite. It wasn't that Canto Pop became what K-pop was, but you certainly had movies like The Matrix don't exist without Hong Kong cinema. And it was globally influential, that style. And you had influential filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino talking about as much. Well, well, one model of how you know that how you think about soft power succeeding is when people in other places do knockoffs of it or remake what you're doing to show how inspired they were. And you had things like the Japanese films being remade by Hollywood. There are multiple examples. Seven Samurai was remade, you know, it's Magnificent Seven. Hong Kong, the Departed was based on, Gorsese was making a film based on a Hong Kong film. And, and just to cycle this back, before 1997, I mean, I'm Hong Kong obsessed, before 1997, there were people who were thinking as soon as this place becomes part of the People's Republic of China, all kind of room for a free press, all kind of room for creativity is going to disappear. And you had, before 1949, Shanghai was the center of the Asian film industry, uh, the East Asian film industry. Then after 1949, the filmmakers all go to Hong Kong because they can't work with this in this kind of system. So there were fears that like the same kind of thing would happen instantly in Hong Kong, that the space for creativity would go. But actually... In the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of kind of willingness to take a light touch 
with Hong Kong. And you could have seen Hong Kong having a kind of degree of a way of being the soft power wing of the People's Republic of China. But then there was just an unwillingness to allow that to keep going. So it is it is strange. The People's Republic of China hasn't, you know, you can see this with individual artists. There was a time when Ai Weiwei was able to operate as an edgy figure within the People's Republic of China, and then a time when he just couldn't. And this has been true with, um, you know, admired writers who have to leave or write things that can only be published outside of, of the country. So I think there is, they do have a they do have a problem with it. Of course, there is creative work being done there that somehow, against all odds, can be done. I think Jia Junke is a wonderful world-class filmmaker who somehow manages to make films there still. But it's they they stack the deck against people who could certainly have the potential to create that that kind of globally admired work. On the one hand, yes. I mean, on the other hand, you are seeing things like the three-body problem getting a Netflix adaptation. It's becoming a commonplace reference for sci-fi geeks across the planet. And I would argue, actually, that the entire aesthetic of cyberpunk has actually been positively impacted by the... Well, no, I'm not going to make that argument. But uh, the aesthetic of cyberpunk has certainly been influenced by Chinese culture uh, more and more over the course of the past decade. And it's certainly shifted from its original Japanese inspirations. That's a really good point. And actually, the three-body problems is an extraordinary phenomenon, which I think is wonderful. I mean, you know, I like the book, and it's, but it's also bizarre that it more more people globally have read Liu Zixin than have read Lu Shun, the greatest writer in 20th century Chinese history. He never had that kind of crossover. Hmm. So it's a fluky thing. It's within a specific space. But but the fact that it's about futuristic kind of things that it fits there is and i think even before i mean the cyberpunk thing i think it's a very good point and it's also though all these things are made they're all hybrid is another part of it they're all influenced by different things but i do think that there was a period when the look of shanghai the architectural space as well as singapore an authoritarian setting with other aspects there there are elements of this that can that can seem to represent the future in either a kind of scary way or exciting way or both at the same time that I think has been, we've seen that shift. We shifted from different cities over time and it's shifted to different places, but there was a time when it was more Tokyo that people were looking at as a kind of model for the excitement or terrors of the future. And now that that can be China. Well, it may simply be a growing Western familiarity with the Japanese context that sort of takes the edge off of the idea of the unknown. Yeah, well, I mean, William Gibson wrote really wonderfully about how Tokyo was his kind of muse that he would go there to kind of he would go to Tokyo and London to think of what might lie ahead, particularly Tokyo. But that shifts that shifts over time. Yeah. All right. Well, actually, this is a really interesting um, line of discussion. So I'm sort of going to continue in this vein uh, and ask you about some of the things you've been discussing with regards to dystopian fiction as a tool for apprehending the nature of the PRC. In a recent talk, you discussed the advantages and limits of the approach of looking at the PRC through dystopian fiction. I was sad that I could not be there. So could you care to elaborate? So um, actually, so this this is oddly, I hadn't really thought about it this way, but in the same way that I talk about, there are imperfect historical analogies and it's more useful to have a couple of parts of the past to compare at the same time. 
I'd say the same thing with a lot of the dystopian fiction. I think the main point that I've kept coming back to for now about 20 years with the PRC was that there's a simplistic way of talking about as an Orwellian state using 1984, Big Brother is watching you, the control of the stories of the past and the kind of rule through fear or boot on the face. At least for the last decades, I've I've argued that it's as valuable to bring in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and rule through kind of manipulation of pleasures or playing to desires. And so I'm really, I've been fascinated by this. That's as much the one as the other. I mean, there used to be this idea that Orwell had unlocked the key to Communist Party run places and Huxley was a critique of capitalism. But with China, I think there have been more Orwellian moments and there are more Huxley-like moments. And I think, you know, the, the massacre 1989, this is an Orwell moment. And then there's a more Huxley-ish decade, at least if you're in the cities like Shanghai in the sort of early 2000s, where it's more about keeping people happily distracted or busily distracted than it is about keeping them in fear. There are also parts of this large and very complicated country that are more one than the other. So clearly, there's something more Orwellian about control in Xinjiang and Tibet and more Huxley-ish the other. So I've, I've been working this theme in different ways. Um, you know, I wrote a book called China's Brave New World and Other Tales for Global Times, which the lead essay was one that I wrote in um, 2003. So it really has been 20 years of thinking about this. Hmm. I started a few years ago to notice that my students got the Orwell reference, but didn't get the Huxley reference anymore. So partly flippantly, but now increasingly, I think significantly, I started saying, well, have you seen the Hunger Games? Hmm. And a lot of them had. And I said, Huxley is how things work in the capital. Orwell is how things work in the place Katniss, the heroine, comes from. And that that, that got more nods of recognition. And that, that the people in both parts of this are controlled. But one, they're, they have more options of just kind of ignoring the degree to which they're controlled. So... I now think The Hunger Games is very valuable in multiple ways. It actually has built into it this idea that different parts of the realm will be controlled in different ways. Mm-hmm. But what's what was then very interesting is that it's been taken up by youth activists across parts of East and Southeast Asia as something that they've adopted symbols from, particularly the three-finger salute of um, resistance. And in Hong Kong, the term from um, the Hunger Games, if if we burn, you burn with us, which is a kind of sense of an all or nothing do or die moment. And actually a version of that term was already popular in Hong Kong gaming culture, but it fit out of the movie and the movie in particular, but the books that I was interviewing various people when I was writing Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink, and my collaborator, Amy Hawkins, was interviewing people and asking them, is there any film or novel that comes to mind when you think about the situation in Hong Kong? And people brought up Orwell. Amy had one person bring up to her Titanic because hmm. they said, you know, people are just going on with their lives and the ship is clearly sinking. And, you know, anyway, but um, the Hunger Games came up. And a young activist or a young Hong Konger um, who clearly was sympathetic to the movement, not necessarily an, an activist per se, said, you know, for my generation, the Hunger Games really is the most powerful way of thinking about politics this way. And and I've really, since then, um, there in 2014 already, there were some um, in Hong Kong and Thailand, there was some use of the Three Finger Salute, right, as one of the movies was coming out. But then it took on this whole life of its own. In 2016, 
young activists formed an opposition party, Demosistos, and they were running one of the women in their group, Agnes Chow. And they had a poster having her sort of look like a character from the Hunger Games and said, it's the Younger Games, uh, sort of like authoritarian is going to be overthrown by a younger generation becoming part of the system. And very playful. I mean, it was drawing very much on pop culture. Um, but then this has even been more in the, the protests that I've been interested in. Now, the Hong Kong 2019, one of the last things I saw on the streets of Hong Kong, I was there in December that year, the last really big protest of the year. And there's a poster of Jennifer Lawrence as Katniss Everdeen in the movie. And it says, if we burn, you burn with us. It's integrated into, into the movement. And then in Thailand in 2020, it becomes a big part of that. And then Burma 2021, it does also in the, the Three Finger Salute itself. And what I find interesting when I talk, one thing I find interesting when I talk about this is I have to convince people sometimes to take this kind of youth culture side of it seriously. Whereas I don't think people have to be convinced that when people objecting to restrictions on abortion dress up like the handmaids from The Handmaid's Tale, that that's politically significant. One thing that makes it more challenging when you're dealing with Margaret Atwood and her world, she is a political figure who writes politically about how she sees this, how she's glad to see her work being taken this way. Suzanne Collins from The Hunger Games, as far as I know, I'd love it. She's listening to this and, um, you know, uh, writes to me about how she feels about this. I haven't seen anything publicly about her feeling about the ideas from The Hunger Games being adopted by these protesters. And spoiler alert, so turn this off if you haven't seen the series, haven't read the books, the young people fighting against impossible odds win. And so I think that's an important part of the Hunger Games attraction uh, to protesters. So it becomes like a David and Goliath story or like a mythic kind of uh, story to give hope in a kind of seemingly impossible situation. On the one hand, I want to say that's very optimistic and that's a you know a, an excellent note to sort of end this segment of the interview on. But on the other hand, I can't help but think about how what started there ended in the lie flat movement, which is sort of a, I don't know, feels like a more radical form of despair. Most movements and most struggles against seemingly impossible odds just don't have anywhere to go. Statistically you know, speaking, yeah. Statistically speaking, things usually fail. And I think that there's a reason why there's a a need for the stories that have successful ending against all odds endings. And they're, they're real figures who are attractive to activists for the same reason. So in Hong Kong, Thailand, there's also Havel is an interesting figure. He failed, 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 but then eventually succeeded. I mean, Thailand, it's a, it's a different story, but they have elections. They're having one now. Often there are elections that go in one way and then they're overturned uh, by a coup. Mandela is another figure who gets talked about and quoted because these are real life figures who mm. at certain points in their lives, if you looked at them and said, do they have any chance of succeeding? You'd say no. I mean, fundamentally, no. But then these struggles can actually take so long that they're hopeful stories. But if you're saying something could change for the better in 20 years or 40 years, one of the not so young Hong Kong activists, Chan Kin Man, who was one of the first organizers of the Occupy movement in 2014, he said when he was put in prison, he one of the first letters from prison he wrote was to remind Hong Kongers of this period of repression of what happened in Taiwan in 1947, when there was a movement, it was crushed. And you can say the Taiwan story, well, 40 years later, I mean, there is democracy in Taiwan, but it takes 40 years 
And the world has to change is the other part of these things that a lot of times when seemingly impossible things happen, it has to do with what activists are doing, but it also has to do with what happens in the wider world. So you can have Soviet bloc activists who keep doing the same thing, keep failing, but it makes a difference when there's a Gorbachev as opposed to a previous leader. So it's a, no, that's, that's what I'm working on right now is trying to make sense Religious beliefs are one of the things that give people hope to struggle in these impossible kinds of situations. People continue just because they couldn't live with themselves if they stopped because their friends are in prison. Or people think that the even if they're not religious, they think that the, the universe moves in a direction toward good. I'm not a person of faith of any of those kinds of faith. So I'm just fascinated by and um in awe of some of the people who do keep coming back to these movements that seem impossible. So I'm fascinated by it. So that's what I'm, I've been working on now. Absolutely. I can understand that. And when you were listing these figures, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm not a person of faith either necessarily, but one, one of the things that did cross my mind was, hmm, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about um, what you're working on currently and the, the subject of your upcoming book. Yeah, so I'm working on what happened after the Hong Kong movement was crushed. My last book ends with the protests of 2019. In the middle of it, I finished writing it in uh, November of 2019 when the movement was still going on, but I ended on a fairly despairing note saying I couldn't see anything in the future other than Hong Kong in the short run becoming a captive colony of Beijing. And I think that's what's happened. So now it's the question of sort of, um, well, what next? And one thing that happened next with Hong Kong is so people continue to find ways to resist in um, small ways. Havel is also very relevant there, just trying to live in truth in a difficult situation. But it also had this global impact with people thinking that Hong Kong's strategies for dealing with tear gas, for having flexible movements, even the use of umbrellas, these were all things that were picked up in some other places, globally dispersed, but disproportionately significant in places nearby. In Thailand, there was almost a sense of a democratic relay with the baton being passed from Hong Kong, as which had these giant demonstrations. And then after the space for them stop, there are some in Thailand in September, October of uh, 2020, and they explicitly borrow some things. There's some actual connections between some of the activists in these two places. And then Burma comes into the mix. Hong Kong activists put up a Google document that has what we learned from the 2019 protests. It's in English and Chinese. And then when Burma starts, they crowdsource a Burmese translation. There's something called protest swapping that I'm really interested in. One of Joshua, Joshua Wong's last protest when he's uh, out large, I think, is to go outside the Thai consulate in Hong Kong and protest police brutality in mm. Thailand. So it's a time where you can still do that more easily than you can talk about things in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, one thing you can't do by that point is sing the song Glory to Hong Kong, which was a protest anthem written during the movement and now would be seen as promoting Hong Kong independence because it's got a national anthem like feel to it. So you can't sing it in Hong Kong. So a Thai activist who's aware of this sings it outside of the Chinese embassy in Bangkok. And there are these other stories of this kind of connectedness. There's also connectedness between the regimes, the Chinese authorities pressuring the Thai authorities to, at one point, send back Uyghurs who had escaped there, at another point to block Joshua Wong from coming there to give a talk. 
one of the booksellers who, Hong Kong bookseller who'd done books that were critical of the, the sort of ruling families of, of China was spirited out of Thailand to the mainland. So there's a sense of these struggles being connected and activists connecting them. So I'm, I'm interested in that. Back to pop culture, talked about earlier, one of the terms for these connections between Hong Kong, Thailand, and now Burma is to call them the Milk Tea Alliance, this kind of loose alliance of places. It's all places that are either fighting against authoritarianism or they're fighting against Chinese Communist Party power or a little bit of both in Thailand. So Thailand's at the center of this for me. But the idea of milk tea alliances, these are all places where the kind of iconic form of drinking tea is some kind of locally specific, but they have it in common that they all have milk in them. And on the mainland, you don't drink tea with milk routinely. So you have Taiwan's bubble tea, you have uh, Hong Kong milky tea, which is more caffeinated than coffee, I've been, uh, been told, and has condensed milk and a particular kind of mix of these things, and Thai tea. Um, and Burmese tea too. So it's, there's this kind of playful way of doing it with popular culture and their memes, all that show these different kinds of teacups swearing allegiance to each other and supporting each other. I think the shared symbolism, the three finger salute and some other things is something else. There's some songs that are sung that show up in each place, including Do You Hear the People Sing? There are these things that connect them. I mean, and they're different movements, but I do think they all are these kind of long odds struggles in places that have an awareness and a memory of past struggles that have failed. And so there's a similar dynamic of sort of what keeps you going in these, in Burma that has had coups and then had a democratization kind of period and now is back in this kind of dark period. Thailand that has had movements that ended with massacres, but also movements toward greater democracy, elections that then are followed by coups. How do you kind of keep going forward with these kinds of things? And that was what I tried out some of these ideas and the work in progress at um, the American University of Paris at the center. And it was a perfect place to try it out and tried them out in a room with a longtime Thai exile and a poet who recently moved from Hong Kong to Paris and somebody who studies, somebody else who studies Chinese civil society, somebody else who studies civil disobedience around the world and different things, and they commented on it. So it was a really wonderful experience and helped move me a lot along this project toward writing a very short book very quickly hmm. about these um, interconnected struggles. All right. Well, then that just leaves one major question, which is when can we expect this book? Well, I'm going to, I'm, 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 I'm in the process. So it'll be, it'll be written, it'll be written in 2023 and out in 2024. All right. Uh, well, I'm sure our listeners will take note of that. I think that seems like a, a good place to wrap up. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Yeah. My pleasure, Jeffrey Wasserstrom. Thank you for uh, participating in the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Talkville 21 podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville21.com. That's T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E-2-1.com. And stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz Number no. 9, Opus 40, for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com.